welcome to the Sermons Podcast of Christ Bible Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. I'm Pastor Levi Secord, and I'd like to thank you for listening. Christ Bible Church exists to bring all of Christ into all of life, and in doing so, we glorify God. This podcast series is not meant to be a replacement for the local church. It is not meant to replace your regular gathering with Christ's people across Christ's earth. And so we encourage you to use these sermons to bring glory to God, to bring all of Christ into all of life, and to strengthen and encourage one another in his name. With all of that in mind, let us turn our hearts and our minds now to the preaching of God's word, and in it may we see and glorify and emulate our Savior. As we continue on in John, we remember that chapter 1 zoomed in on the identity and the mission of Jesus Christ. Last time we were together, we saw the titles of the Son of God and the Son of Man applied to Christ. But we also saw his mission, that he is the Lamb of God who removes the sins of the world. He's also the one who baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. And so we have this foundation laid. Really, chapter 1 lays the foundation for the entire book, but it's laid for the coming of Christ to bring in this new realities. Something new, something greater has come in Christ. The new creation, new life, new joy, life eternal. And as the Lamb of God who removes the sin of the world, he is the one who brings the Holy Spirit, and he is the one who purifies us. These are all major themes, not only in John 1, but also here in John 2 this morning. And so we have, in John chapter 2, the very beginning of Christ's public ministry. We read that this is the first of his public signs. And so we have to ask ourselves a lot of questions about this. What is a sign? In the most basic sense, a sign is something that points to a greater reality, a greater truth. A sign is more than the sum of its parts. For example, when you drive down a road, you'll encounter lots of different signs out there, and you ignore them to your own peril. If you're driving down a rural highway, and there's a sign on the side of the road with a picture of a deer on it, it is not just there as a work of art, but rather... It points to the reality of the danger of deer crossing that specific highway. If you're driving on the side of a road or the side of a cliff, and you see a sign that pictures rocks that are falling, it is there to warn you of a greater truth, a greater reality, that rocks may indeed fall upon the road. In a similar similar way, Jesus performs signs and miracles to testify about a greater truth, and that truth is who he is, the nature of his work, the nature of his kingdom, and really where we are without them. As I've said to you before, Jesus didn't perform miracles because they were cool. He didn't perform them to draw a crowd. He performed them to communicate who he was. This is why later on in the Gospel of John and John 6, Jesus is going to feed thousands of people miraculously. The crowds are going to start to follow him around and they're going to demand more. And they're going to go demand more and more and more. And Jesus says, I'm not going to do it. Why? Because you didn't get the point of the sign. The sign wasn't the food. The sign was ultimately about him. So in chapter 2, we get introduced to the messianic ministry of Jesus Christ. And it is contrasted with the lifeless nature of the contemporary Judaism of Jesus' day. Judaism had all of the forms and rituals. They were all there, but they were utterly incapable of imparting life because even these forms and these rituals were signs of greater realities, or as Paul says, they are shadows in the substance is Christ. 
These signs or these rituals were weak and lifeless and merely things that the people of Israel were going through the motions to conduct. The Judaism of that day, whether it was that of the Pharisees or the Sadducees, was spiritually dead. And Jesus' ministry communicates that reality. But yet we have this age-old tension that is set up, that sometimes we see formulated in the idea of religion versus relationship. We are told that Christianity isn't a religion. We're told it's a relationship. But this is really a false dichotomy. Christianity is most certainly a religion. It is the true religion. In every age, in every movement within the church, has tended to err in one direction or the other. It tends to err in the direction of a dry formalism, where we have all of the rituals, where we have all of the rites that God has given us, and even we tend then to add some, but there is no heart behind it. And so we have beautiful buildings that are built that are full of spiritual deadness. And the other side of that equation, where we tend towards more today, is that we reject the rituals of worship, even those that God has given to us, and we instead worship the cool or the spontaneous or our emotions. Something is only really spiritual if it is genuine and spontaneous. Ours is a day of light shows and dramatic smoke to conjure up an experience or an emotional reaction. And this also becomes ritualistic. Jesus' day was the exact opposite, a, die, a dead and dry formalism. But we should note that in this tension that we feel in this passage and even in our own religious experiences, that God gives us rituals. The rituals themselves are not the problem. The rituals themselves are meant to engage and guide our emotions. They provide structure and they point to a greater meaning. And so God has given us rituals in our daily living. Sunrise, sunset, we go to sleep, we wake up. The change of seasons, marriage, ceremonies, and funerals. God gave Israel the feasts. That went throughout the year. He's given the church the rituals of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And he's called us to gather together ritually on every uh, first day of the week on Sundays to worship him. The list goes on and on and on. Contrary to our progressivist age, rituals are not the problem. They are not bondage. But rather the problem is the human heart. It is our hypocrisy that we would go through the motions and see that as good enough. Rather, our day tends towards rejecting not only the rituals that God has given, but we have this elitist snobbery that flat out rejects the inherited wisdom of rituals that we've gotten from our forefathers. And so we have some idealized view of our emotions as being able to determine what is truly spiritual and what is not. And into all of this, John chapter 2 speaks to us of the difference of Jesus' work, the Messianic age, and the dry formalism of Christ's time. And so we are introduced to what Christ is bringing through contrast here. These new realities he is bringing of joy and purity and newness of life through his work. And it all begins, of all places, at a wedding. And so I want to begin this morning by looking at the theological backdrop, the setting of Christ's first miracle. Because we have to ask this question. Why is this the first sign? Nothing in Christ's life happens by accident. So why is this wedding and this turning of water into wine the first miracle of Christ's ministry? Well, as John recounts this, this happened on the third day. 
And if you are counting the days in these opening chapters, this actually makes it the seventh day in the opening chapters of John. And we have this strong theme that ran throughout John, John 1 of this new creation. New creation, this mirroring of the old. In fact, John 1, 1 begins right where Genesis 1, 1 began. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God and all things were made through this word. There's an intentional alluding back to the creation week throughout John's work so that we would see Christ's work as a new creation week. Seven days. The location of this first sign also brings meaning and context to the sign of Christ. Weddings are indeed places of joy and celebration. They mark a new stage in life. Two people literally become one flesh. They leave their respective families and they begin a new family. There's leaving and cleaving. This is an entire new era. This is not an accident for the first sign. But this wedding in Cana has a dark cloud hanging over it as they are about to run out of wine. What was meant to be a joyful event that celebrates life in newness is about to become a lifeless event that is a source of shame and failure for the family in that couple. In Jewish culture, the family was obligated to provide for the guests, and there would be huge cultural shame and disappointment if they ran out of a staple like wine. So turning water into wine at a wedding is the setting of Christ's first miracle, his first sign. Why? Again, Jesus came at exactly the right time in history. Nothing in his life happened on accident or by coincidence. Coincidence. The Old Testament prophets spoke of the coming of the Messiah, of his age in terms of a wedding. Consider what Isaiah 62, 4-5 says. You shall no more be termed forsaken. Your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her, in your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. The messianic age is like a wedding. Or to put it more clearly, a wedding pictures the messianic age. The joy, the unity, the new realities, the boundless potential displayed at a wedding day. This is a picture of Christ and his work. And for this reason, the church is called the Bride of Christ. For this reason, we sing hymns where we sing, say things like this, From heaven he, that is Jesus, came and sought her, that is his bride. Jesus has come for his promised bride. And Paul adds his voice to the chorus and says, The meaning of the sign of marriage is that it points to a deeper theological reality of Christ and his church. The oneness, joy, and pleasure of the union of marriage is to be a foretaste of the glories of the kingdom of Christ. And so the setting of a wedding makes perfect sense for Christ's first sign. It is no accident. Moreover, if you take a step back and you look at John's work in its totality, Christ's first sign, his first miracle, his first act of earthly ministry is at a wedding, and his last act of earthly ministry comes right before a wedding. Revelation chapter 19, the wedding supper of the Lamb. The messianic ministry of Christ is bookended in John's work by weddings. Marriage is not only the foundation of society and civilization, 
but it is a central picture of the gospel that God has woven into creation. And for this reason, Christians must never relax or compromise on the standards and the glories of marriage as set forth in Scripture. There is one final part of this setting. There are six stone jars of purification. Now, purity, again, is a major theme of these opening chapters of John, from Jesus' baptism to him being the one who will remove the sins of the world to the coming cleansing of the temple. Purity was also to be a mark of the Messianic age. But these stone jars are shown to be obsolete at this wedding. Jesus will fill them with something greater. He will fill them with wine. It's no accident that the jars of purification are there, and they are then ultimately used for something different. For they don't actually bring purification, and this is a symbol of the lifeless nature of the Judaism of that day. I want you to consider the words of my former pastor and seminary professor William Cook on this passage. He writes, The rabbinic literature stipulated that stone jars could be used as permanent vessels for purification. They're not to be used for anything else. Cook continues, The fact that they have run out of wine and have only water for ritual purification indicates the bankruptcy of Judaism in contrast to the abundant supply of the Messianic age. The contrast here is between a lifeless and dead formalism and the work of Christ in his kingdom. Now we move to the sign proper. Listen to verses 6 through 12. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of of the feast tasted the water, and now become wine, and did not know where it come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to them, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So we understand that the setting is a wedding, but of all things, why is the first sign turning purification water into wine? Was it merely to be in a thorn in the side of fundamentalists? Probably not. But maybe. Of course, we know that alcohol is not sinful in itself, and it is also something, though, that we are to approach with great maturity, recognizing its potential for both abuse and enslaving us. So why turn purification water into wine? What is this sign pointing to? Why did God pick this for the first sign. First, we must note that he replaces the old and dead purification rituals with wine, and not any wine, but the best wine. The master of the feast is shocked because the best of the wine has come at the end of the feast. Generally, people would serve the good wine first, and then after people had gotten used to it and had a little too much maybe, they would bring out the poor wine. The message here is rather clear. Christ is bringing a new and better reality. The old has been fulfilled and transformed. And what is best is is coming now. It's not from back then. This is the mark of the Messianic age. It is better than everything that came before. 
But we return to the question, why wine? Two reasons. While the Bible offers cautions for our alcoholic use, it forbids drunkenness. We do have a consistent teaching as to the purpose of wine. Consider Psalm 104, where we read that God gives wine to gladden the heart of man. This is not alone in the Bible. Judges 9.13 also speaks of wine cheering men. Ecclesiastes 10.19 says bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life. Wine is meant to bring joy and gladness to life. We use it still to this day, wine and champagne, to celebrate weddings. It is for merrymaking. It is to bring joy and to rejoice at special occasions. The reason wine is the first sign is because wine is a picture of the joy in celebration, not only at weddings, but of the messianic age. To put it plainly, joy is to mark the Christian life. Jesus' people are to be a joy-filled people. The second reason is this. The prophets pictured the coming of the Messiah and his kingdom as a time of abundant wine in turning our sorrows into gladness. Jeremiah 31, 12 through 13. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. They shall, then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. Then Amos 9.13 and following. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit, and I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land I have given to them, says the Lord. The reason Jesus' first sign is turning water into wine is because it is a mark of the abundant age promised by the prophets that is to mark the time of the Messiah. It is to mark the promise of turning our sorrows into joy. This is the work of the Messiah. Jesus finds a dead, sorrowful Judaism represented by these six stone jars filled with lifeless purification ritual water. And he turns that sorrow into joyful, abundant, best wine filled to the brim, 150 gallons. And he turns the potential sorrow and shame of running out of wine at a wedding into an abundant supply of the best. Brothers and sisters, I talk with you often. I pray for specific people from our church every week. And through that process, I am shocked, though I shouldn't be, that God often aligns the week I have chosen to pray for you as aligning with something that is going on in your life. And through this all, you have shared with me your trials, your concerns, your burdens, your sorrows. Life in this fallen world is not easy. And as we walk through this life, there is so much that can steal our joy. So much that can tempt us to just throw up our hands and say, we're done. So much despair. Especially this year. There's whole industries out there that are going to tempt you to despair throughout this year. There's so much darkness. 
But this miracle is a sign given to us to rejoice. Christ's kingdom has broken into this world. And he brings joy. The promise of Christ is that our weeping will be transformed into rejoicing and our sorrow into joy. Jeremiah 31 again. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I know your deep hurt and your burdens. And I know that it doesn't seem like any of this is going to make any sense or get any better. But Christ has promised it. And this wine, this abundant wine, is a sign of that promise. This brings us to the second act. In chapter 2, it's a very different setting, but the very similar message. Jesus visits the temple in Jerusalem, and he finds it dead and defiled. Much like how the stone jars for purification pointed to the deadness of Israel's spiritual state, so does the state of the temple. The temple was built by Solomon in 9 Uh, 949 BC. It was then destroyed by the Babylonians. The prophet Ezekiel, he looked out at the temple and God's spirit was lifted out of it. It was not God who was defeated in the exile, but it was God who left them, who exiled, who kicked out Israel. The second temple was rebuilt in 515 BC. And the people gathered around the temple and they wept. For it was nothing compared to the first temple. And there was no sign of God's spirit filling it. Herod remodeled and expanded the temple beginning in 20 BC, and it didn't get completed until 64 AD, and six years later it was destroyed. The temple was at the heart of the Jewish faith. It was where the sacrifices were offered that God had commanded, and it was also how God lived with or dwelled with his people. And we already have the groundwork in John 1 and 2 for Jesus replacing that temple. Jesus is the true Lamb of God, the true sacrifice of God. This renders the temple unneeded. He is also, we read, God in the flesh. He is Emmanuel, God with us. We read in John 1 that Jesus tabernacles or temples with his people. He is the greater temple, and that is exactly what plays out in this episode. Jesus, who is the temple, walks into the temple and finds the outer courts, the courts of the Gentiles, turned into a place of trade, a place of buying and selling sacrifices and exchanging money. We must note that there is nothing wrong with the buying and selling of the animals or even the currency exchange. People, Jews from all across the empire, would come on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover, and they would need to buy animals. They would need to exchange currency. The problem was not the act, but where it had taken place. This was a part of the temple courts that was set aside so that the Gentiles, the nations, had a place to come to God to worship him and to pray. And the Jews, for some reason, thought that wasn't important. It was more important that they make a profit there. Religion has ever been vulnerable to those who want to get rich off of it. Just look at so many of our church complexes today. It's big money. And Jesus, when he sees the corruption and the defilement of his father's house, he is filled with zeal and intense passion for the glory and the honor of God, and he expresses his anger at what he sees. 
This is not something we need to apologize for. This is no defect. Jesus cleanses or purifies the temple. He throws over the tables. He makes a whip. He scatters the money. And he chases the animals and the people out. This is not your Sunday school version of Jesus. Let me put it very, very clearly here. If your theology of Jesus doesn't have room for this, then you have an idolatrous Jesus. And we should also note that this is not Jesus' default action. So if this is your, always your default action, you're not being like Jesus either. But the imagery here is striking. The true Lamb of God and the true temple of God chases those that are shadowy lambs out of the shadowy temple. Those sacrifices couldn't purify anything. Jesus can. This is the newness that his ministry has brought. And the leaders, the Jewish leaders, look at this and they're understandably upset. And what do they demand? They say, give us a sign. They know that he has claimed messianic authority in doing this. They say, what gives you the right to do this? You better be able to prove something to us. He just gave a sign at the wedding. But Jesus refuses to give them an immediate sign. But he tells them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, they misunderstand him. But John points out, Jesus is talking about himself. He is the temple. So Jesus literally invites them to kill him. You want a sign? Destroy my body. Destroy me, the temple, and I will raise it up in three days. The sign is his death and his resurrection. It is no wonder that when he died, the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. For the true temple, Jesus Christ, had died. It was finished. The leaders entirely missed the point. Jesus brings a purity the sacrifices never could. He brings a fulfillment to the old. He brings new life where there is only a lifeless Judaism. And he brings joy. The chapter ends on really a low point. It says that some believed in Jesus because of his signs, but there's this theme throughout the Gospels that people will see the signs of Jesus and they believe, but they don't really believe. And so the chapter ends with this, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. The signs weren't enough. What is in man? Sin and death. These people are spiritually dead. And turning water into wine can't fix that. Chasing the money changers out can't fix that. Something more has to happen. And that sets the stage for John 3, which will be in next week, that we need to be born again. So what? What applications can we, we make from this? I want to make a couple applications here in closing for us this morning. First, Let's begin our applications with where we began the message. Do not give in to a dead formalism or a blind emotionalism. The religious rituals that God has given to us are not the problem. The problem comes when we just go through the motions and we don't let those rituals shape and inform our hearts and our lives. Don't trust the forms in and of themselves. Trust what they point to. But ours is a day where we are tempted to a mere emotionalism, where our emotions and our feelings reign supreme. 
where we think the only genuine religious experience is that which is spontaneous and loud and filled with flashes of light. But such movements have their own rituals to excite and cause the experience they want. Instead, we need a truth in our rituals that should give guidance and form and substance to our emotions and our feelings. This is a good thing. Second, we are called to rightly see Jesus and live with a joy for what he has done and will do and a zealous passion for him and his kingdom. We should have a joy like being at a wedding, drinking champagne or wine. That is the general mark of a Christian. I'm not talking about a surface-level fake happiness or pretending like everything is okay when it's not. But the promise of Christ is that even in our deepest hurts, even with our greatest sorrows, they will be turned into joy. If we know that, we can resist the allure of bitterness and pessimism and despair. Just like the potential shame of running out of wine was turned into the best wine yet, so Christ will make all things new and turn our deepest sorrows into great joy. Trust him. Therefore, we are called to live zealous, passionate lives of faith. Just like Christ's zealousness motivated him to cleanse the temple, we are to be like him in being consumed with his glory and his namesake. And while you will likely never need to make a whip and chase people out of a temple, if the need should ever arise, your faith should motivate you to do so. That's the type of zeal we should have. Finally, all of this revolves around Christ. His coming is a shift in the redemption story of the universe. Jesus Christ is the true lamb. He is the true temple. He is the true giver of joy. He is the one who brings new life. He is the one who will turn our sorrows into eternal joy, who is making all things new. Jesus is at the center of it all this morning. Let's praise him. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Christ Bible Church. Remember, this world is dripping with meaning because Christ created it, he sustains it, and he is reconciling it all to himself. Now go and live out that glorious truth.